As I was away this past week, I was in a conference with 4,000 preachers. Can you imagine being with that many preachers in one place? And as they would ask me about uh, where I pastored in our church, I'd do just like this. I would just well up. And they'd say, you've been there how many years? And I'd say, 35 years. And I said, I know, I know. They look at me like, that's what, what an anomaly. And I said, I said, it's just what the Lord has done. I know he doesn't do that to everybody's ministry and heart and life, but I'm sure thankful it's, it's been that way in mine. And when I was not in meeting, my heart was just continually drawn to you and praying for you individually and as our church as a whole, and that the Lord would pour out his, his blessings upon us, that he would revive us and make us be the church that we, we want to be and we ought to be and bow before the lordship of jesus christ i would wish you could have heard the prayers in the prayer meeting before the service tonight i mean lifting up petitions on your behalf on behalf of the the lost and and surely surely the lord will hear the prayers of his people i'm convinced of it aren't you i know of no other thing and the pattern of his word here is we're studying what he wants us to be as a, as a church. And so with that in mind, let us ask for his blessing on us tonight. Now, Lord, we've come to this portion of Scripture that you know of as we're studying through the doctrines that we hold dear, the faith once delivered to the saints. I pray that we would not do it just by ritual or rigmarole or um, approach it haphazardly. But, Lord, even as we study the different offices of the church, may we exalt and exult over the fact that you have given us a pattern and that you care for us. And I pray that you would, uh, Lord, sanctify us by your word. And may we recommit as we end uh, near the end of this study in a few weeks of, of our, our statement of faith to, co- to commit ourselves to be the church, the New Testament church that you've designed for us to be. Now, Lord, we know that we can't build a church and we can't do anything apart from your grace but i pray that we as your people the leadership and every member would endeavor to be the church of christ here on earth and glorify our savior and show the lost what it means to be a part of the family of god thank you for placing me here to live out my christian life and to minister and to uh, to know these people and to love them and to associate with them in this holy partnership of um, holding up the banner of Jesus Christ and taking the gospel to every creature. Bless us, Lord, we beg. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've been studying the 14th tenet of our statement of faith, which reads, the Lord Jesus is the head of the church, which is composed of all his true disciples, and in him is invested supremely all power for its government. According to his commandments, Christians are to associate themselves into particular societies of churches. And to each of these churches, he has given needful authority for the administration of that order. The offices of the church are two. The bishops and elders, those are synonymous terms. We commonly call them pastors and deacons. Bishop or elders are synonymous, as we've mentioned, and the, the office of deacon is the other office of the New Testament church. 
some ask about the plurality of elders, and we want to look at that tonight. What does that mean, and should should we have that in the, the local New Testament church? And uh, the plurality of elders, or is there the office of pastor, elders, and deacons? Is that is that a distinguished uh, office? And so we'll we'll look at that as the Lord leads us and guides us in our study tonight. The background for the choosing of the deacons, I believe, is found in Acts chapter 6. Now, many commentators that, and Bible teachers that I greatly respect absolutely disregard the Acts chapter 6 section as not be referring to deacons. You, scratch, you have to scratch your head at that because if that's not what it's describing, what is it? Especially in light of the fact that the word, English word deacon is in, in, is in the Acts account is not found, they, they would argue when the, the 12 disciples said it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. That Greek word for serve is diakonos. It is the very word used in the text that we're looking at in First Timothy. And so I, I think the Holy Spirit, I not think, I know the Holy Spirit knows more than we do. The very word, and every other word would you see the word deacon in the, in the New Testament is this word used here for the serving of tables. It's the Greek word diakonio, which is the word that we get our English word from deacon. And according to Strong's exhaustive concordance, uh, which I refer to often, the, the number beside that word, if you look it up in Strong's, is the number 1247. If you turn to the very back of the Greek words, you'll find that the Greek word diakonia and this definition to be an attendant, the word defined here in Acts, that word serve is the word I'm defining for you according to the, the dear brother Strong, to be an attendant, to wait on menially as a host, friend or to act as a deacon, minister, to use the office of a deacon. It is the same word used to translate deacon or, or the, the derivation of that word, uh, diaconio, in every other place in the New Testament. So I believe with all authority, and what is described here for us is exactly what the deacons will do in, in the New Testament church, that in, indeed Acts chapter 6 is the reference point or the foundation or sets the pattern for what deacons will do in the, in the New Testament church as it grows and is expanded. We see them in action here. There was a problem. What was the problem? The widows were being neglected, and, and the, the apostles, not that they wouldn't, but I'm, I'm sure that not that uh, Peter or any of those men would have gladly done anything they could. They just said it is not logistically or physically possible for us to oversee a church of several thousand and make sure all the ladies get their daily portion of food. Surely there's someone who can come alongside and help us. Not that that's not important, but when you look at the, the descriptions and the responsibilities and weigh them in that eternal scale, there needs to be some kind of structure. And that's exactly what the Lord does. He answers the need by giving them this uh, formula or this pattern, if you will, for leadership in his church. The Lord knows exactly what we need, doesn't he? And how it, how it should be done. And, and we're not following cunningly devised fables or flying by the seat of our pants. or just, Let's just elect this and that. That's not what this is about at all. This is what the Lord has, has given to us. 
And so I believe that the account in Acts does set the precedent, even though the office is not said these are deacons. I think the Holy Spirit points to it by the use of the words and by the pattern there and what they do and how they're chosen. All of that is to, uh, to pattern the, 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 the office that we're studying about in 1 Timothy chapter 3. As I have said, we believe that there are two specific offices in the Lord's church, that of pastors or elders. Again, the word uh, is used synonymously. We, we commonly use the word pastor to define the word deacon, excuse me, the word uh, bishop or elder, which an overseer, a shepherd of a flock, thus a pastor. And so from here on, when I say that word, pastor or bishop or uh, or elder, that's in one category. In the other category of the officers that are designated by the Holy Spirit is the office of deacon. You'll notice here that the qualifications for both offices are almost identical. I remember as a young Christian, uh, I'd been in a liturgical church until my conversion. And after my conversion, I began to pray that the Lord would, would place me in a New Testament church how that I even knew there was a such thing, I began to read the, the, the New Testament voraciously on my knees. And I so desperately, you know, reading the New Testament, the first thing that came to mind is that I had an obligation to follow my Lord in believer's baptism. The church of which my family was attended did not believe in uh, the, the, the mode of immersion for our, our believer's baptism. They believed in infant baptism. And I knew I wasn't saved when my parents had me, uh, whatever that was that, that they did. And I knew that every precedent I saw in the, in the New Testament of a person who, was, uh, who came to know the Lord was baptized upon their profession of faith or after their conversion. And let me ask you, have you gotten that order right in your own testimony, in your own life? Uh, baptism does not save. That's one of the next things we're going to study in our tenets of, of faith. It's very important. It is a command. It's obligatory upon, upon every believer to follow their Lord. That, that in itself, if our Lord set the pattern for us, is there any question? Why are we discussing it? Why would we debate of whether we should or not or, or the mode when it's very clear in the Scripture given to us? But I'll leave, I'll leave that till two or three weeks from now. But I had the strong desire to follow the Lord in baptism and to be a part of of a body of believers who uh, uh, emulated the, what I saw in the New Testament. And so uh, I, I, early in, in my, this was a new church that was being formed, and um, they, of course, did not have any officers except for the pastor. And soon, they, uh, about after about several months, I, I became a part of the church when it was just a few months old, and uh, they began to um, teach and, uh, about this office as I'm doing here in elect deacons. And I remember as a young 18-year-old boy, before I ever really fully understood the call of God upon my life, I, I didn't realize that's what he was doing. I, I said, Lord, let me be qualified. Let me be such a man that would, would be able to be chosen as a, as a deacon in the church. And so you'll notice here that these qualifications are almost identical with the exception that the pastor or the elders are required to be able to teach doctrine, apt to teach, able to teach the, the doctrine of, of the Word of God. And, and deacons are not. They can but they're not required to be. That requirement is not uh, imperative upon them serving in that office. As we see in the last part of verse 2, for the pastor apt or able to teach, but that requirement is not required of deacons. A deacon may have that spiritual gift, and we thank the Lord for the, the gift of teaching in the church, a very important gift. 
that, that may be separate from either one of these offices. We praise the Lord for the teachers and those of you who have the ability to teach in the church. And they do not follow the qualifications for teachers. Of course, they should live what they teach and there are other things, but they don't fall in these specific qualifications here. But we're so thankful for those who've taught us the Word of God, not only by precept, but by, uh, by their example in their, in their lives. But uh, the word here in verse 8, likewise, would you look there, likewise must the deacons. What does that mean? Those kinds of words are very important. It indicates a second equally important office alongside that of the shepherd or the elder. Likewise is a word of transition, introducing a new category or different or separate category of church leadership. And Paul gives five areas that we'll touch upon tonight that serving, a man serving as a deacon must qualify. His personal character in verse 8, his spirituality in verse 9, his service in the first part of verse 10, his purity in verse 10, the latter part of verse 10 and in verse 12, and then his home life in, in the latter part of verse 12. We see there that, first of all, likewise, or alongside the, the pastor, the deacons must be grave the word there, as we've seen, is the word uh, uh, "simnos" in the Greek, and it means dignified or serious, uh, stately even. Now, you may not think about that word when you think about uh, deacons, but the office calls for it. It is a mindset, not necessarily a physical bearing, but a mindset and philosophy toward the things of God. This is serious business. It is the church of the living God. His work must be carried out in his way in an air of, of humbleness and, and uh, reverence and in awe. This is not a carnival. I've been in places that I felt like I was at a carnival, but the Church of Christ is not a carnival. It's not a sideshow. It is not a diversion. It is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the bride of Christ. It's not a a men's fishing trip or a golf outing. It is the bride of Christ and as such must be treated in a very reverent, special, set-apart way. The word there, grave, comes from a root word meaning to venerate or to worship. And those who serve in this office should have a, a noble quality about them that they realize that this business is the very business of God. Something heavenly on earth we're actually touching heavenly things as we minister the, the menial and the earthly things of, of people's lives in the church down here below. It's a character that causes people to be in awe of them and their office. So a deacon isn't a flippant jokester. Uh, who goes about glad-handing the people and telling jokes between Sunday school and church, or who, who makes light of the serious business of the church, the worship service of the church, and, and the Lord's table, and etc. Nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, this doesn't mean that, as with the pastor, that a deacon can't have a sense of humor. You know what I'm talking about here. It's not that at all. We certainly need a sense of humor and uh, to look at some of the things that we have to deal with. But the whole service of the Lord is no joke. It's not a flippant thing. It's not a do-whatever-you-want-to, uh, jokesy, folksy kind of thing at all. We stand in awe as the Lord unfolds these things before us, don't we? What, the conversion of souls? We, we heard about in the prayer meeting tonight that a man came to the service today because he saw the verses on the fence out there and was drawn to come into this place because of that. 
This is holy ground. This is the gospel of Christ. Souls are in the balance. Every young person who rode that, those buses and came into our Sunday school classes and sat in this auditorium in the children's church, this is eternal business. And it ought to seem that way that in our lives and as we deal with these things. Some deacons see themselves as figureheads or as power brokers or as preacher makers or breakers. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is not to be the case at all. They are the, the first in line of the servants of the church. When you, when you have the, the banner servants there, the deacons are lined up there first, leading the way. And while they are to enlist other people to help and to oversee, it is their chief responsibility to physically carry out what is needed in the church's ministry. And that is far more than passing out the elements of the Lord's table and taking up the offering. Notice the apostle begins with their speech. Oh, what a serious thing this is. Our speech, this I believe is because they're often in a position of knowing the church business and knowing grave situations and having to come alongside the pastor and being privy to those things and helping him pray over them and, and knowing how to deal with things and church discipline and those kinds of things. They, just by the very virtue of, the, of their office, they, they are privy to, to knowledge that they have to be careful about. The pastors inform them about it, and, and knowing this, this heavy load of information that they must be prudent in their speech, not a gossip, and not literally it means not saying one thing to these people because they want to hear it, and saying something over here to these people, uh, as the tendency may be to do when you're trying to satisfy. You know, the, the deacons in that early meeting that we just talked about well, might have said something to the Grecian widows and come over here and said something else to the other widows to keep them from being at odds with one another, just to hear say what they want to say. Double-tongued, two-faced, and that's the opposite of what uh, this office calls for. It must not be hypocritical. And so... As with the pastor, there must be integrity and honesty and consistency in speech. And, you know, that's something we all struggle with, isn't it? To be absolutely consistent in what we say. And so this shouldn't be, this shouldn't, uh, be true of any of us being inconsistent or without integrity. The next area that we see here of his character deals with the use of alcohol. This is mentioned in the qualifications of the bishop, but it's again brought out here in verse 3. Uh, with the bishop in here uh, in verse 8, not given to much wine. And someone says, uh-oh, look there, the word much. You've got a problem there, Brother Lamb. No, I don't have a problem here at all. But we do need to understand what the Scripture is saying, not given to wine or controlled by it or to be dominated, uh, his life dominated. Here, the deacon must not be given to much wine. Literally, in the Greek, it means to occupy oneself with or to be preoccupied with, where it's a major segment of their lives. Or we could say not be addicted to wine or, for that matter, to any controlling substance. I believe we'd be very uh, in line of putting that there alongside. Your wine is just a New Testament uh, uh, area that was brought up, but it would cover, as so often the case, any addictive uh, substances. Homer Kent writes in his commentary on the pastoral epistles, it is extremely difficult for the 20th century American 
to understand or appreciate the society of Paul's day. As always, when you're studying Scripture, you have to go back 2,000 years for some of these statements to even understand what the mindset is. The, the fact that deacons were not told to become total abstainers, but rather to be temperate, does not mean that Christians today can use liquor in moderate amounts. The wine employed for common beverage of that day was very largely water. The social stigma and the tremendous social evils that accompany drinking today did not attach themselves to the use of wine as the common beverage in the homes of Paul's day. But as the church grew and the Christian consciousness and and conscience developed, the dangers of drinking became more clearly seen. The principle laid down elsewhere by Paul that Christians should not do anything to cause a brother to stumble came to be applied to the use of wine. And absolutely... uh, imperative book, I think, that all believers should read, especially if you have any questions about this matter, is the little book that Peter Masters has written called Should Christians Drink? And it's in our church library. I would, if you want to study it or answer, because this is becoming, again, uh, an issue in the church where uh, many say they have liberty to do so. But I think we need to know what we're talking about in the facts. And many people don't, either on either, either side of the issue. But that book is a very good book to help you see things in the historical perspective and what is being discussed here. And without going into great de- detail, I want you just to read a bit of what Dr. Masters says. The commonly available alcoholic drinks of Bible times were wines and beers, with wines prevailing in ancient Palestine. These were considerably weaker than many of the strong wines of today, particularly the chapitalized and fortified wines, not to mention distilled spirits, none of which existed in those days. And the reason is they did not have the, the, the methods to, to get them to the extent of their potency, for lack of better words, that we can today. The highest achievable alcohol content of wines produced by ordinary fermentation in Paul's day, the only process available in Bible times, is around 14%. In those days, however, wine was not normally fermented anywhere near to that ceiling because of the unpleasant taste produced by the extraneous bacteria which their technology could not eliminate. These joined in the fermentation process, turning the sugar into vinegar. The common wines of Palestine were fermented for only three to four days compared with the six-month period of the Greeks. And while their strength is not known, the indications were that they were extremely weak. Andre Bustanabi, in his book, The Wrath of Grapes, writes against abstention and in favor of moderation only, but from a detailed examination of the ancient winemaking process, he concludes that alcohol abuse was not a major problem to the ordinary people of ancient times because good-strength wine was expensive and not in great supply, and the common wine, he asserts, was poor-quality wine of low alcohol content. Indeed, much of it never became true wine at all. It was just aerobically, I think I said that right, fermented must, the word M-U-S-T, must is the juice of grapes, which begins to ferment as soon as it is pressed from the grape. The must was left in open jars or vats to undergo aerobic, I guess the air fermentation in Palestine for only a few days. The next stage of the winemaking process, anaerobic fermentation, in other words, shut off from air or oxygen, was very difficult in olden times due to their porous containers and poor stoppers. Thus, the cheaply produced ordinary wines were stunted in development, sometimes lacking any anaerobic fermentation, which has been described as the birth of the wine. 
And as this man appropriately comments, much of the confusion over the drinking habits of the ancient arises from a failure to understand this fact. Until the juice of the grape undergoes anaerobic uh, fermentation is not really wine. It is merely fermented must or a new wine of low alcoholic content. The common wine of ancient Palestine was certainly fermented and no doubt intoxicating in quantity, but it was extremely weak product by today's standards, estimated being between 2% for lightly fermented must to 6% uh, in strength, and realizing that about 14% was as high as they could get it in that day and time by the methods that they had. Some 1,200 years after the New Testament was written, human ingenuity discovered the process of alcohol distillation, ushering in a massive change in the potency of available alcoholic drinks so that what you go and see on the counter today in the average store is in no, no way com compared to what Paul is discussing here to, to Timothy. Yet 700 years further still along the road of history and human misery, there are too many Christians who would like to pretend that none of this has happened. With the invention of distillation, the top theoretical limit of 14% alcohol available in Paul's day has leapt. Nowadays, spirits of 40%, the normal bottle strength for gins, rums, brandies, and whiskeys, are commonplace. And among the stronger spirits, it is bottled at 75%. So... Uh, without going into much greater detail, you see what we're talking about here. And the reason Paul mentions later on to Timothy to use a little for uh, his stomach's sake is because of the, the uh, improper, the, the water was not always what it should be, and they drank it so that they would not get sick. Again, Homer Kent says, Certainly in present-day America, the use of wine by a Christian would abet a recognized social evil and would set a most dangerous example for the young and the weak. To us, Paul would undoubtedly say no wine at all in this day with the technology that we have of making it what you see on the store uh, shelves as is available. But notice a third area here. But even then, he's saying you must be prudent and be careful in this area. Notice a third area of, of the deacon's personal character that deals with money. And no wonder they handled the church's money. That's part of their office and their calling and what they oversee, and, and along with pastors. And because of that, he says they must not be greedy of filthy lucre. Paul just uses really bad words for people who love money. Filthy lucre. Now, we think of something filthy as vermin, rats. I, that comes to mind when you think of something filthy. If you've seen where a rat's been, oh, vermin. He just can't stand it, you know, or, or roaches. That's filthy. But Paul uses that word to describe those who love money. Somehow or another, we don't put it in the same category, do we? Filthy lucre. And we see in verse 8 as well, the deacon must, just like the bishop, must not be greedy of filthy lucre. He's to be temperate in all things as the pastor should be, or as some have rendered it, not be fond of sordid gain. In other words, he must not use his office as a way of making money, and someone would say, well, how would he do that? The deacons in the early church, as they do today, handle the church's finances as part of their official duties uh, to the church, and, and rightfully so, someone has to do that. And our deacons have a high degree of accountability in dealing with the money and of handling the, the offerings and, and of, of, of cross-checking and of seeing that it's all done. They're all there when it's being counted, or, or the large portion of them 
and they sign off on it. They check and double check. And there's all kinds of procedures from the time that money is put in the offering plate till it's deposited in the bank. And they all sense it a very, very sacred and a responsible thing to be stewards of the Lord's money. But they, the deacons not only did that, but they were, were over the distribution of benevolence and trying to determine who is in need and, and how these things should be done. Remember, Judas is a prime example, although he wasn't a deacon, he was a disciple of, of a person in spiritual office who used his office to get filthy lucre. You remember he was the treasurer of the first church of the Lord and his 12 disciples, that, that embryonic church. And uh, the Bible tells us in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, that he, he had uh, control of the purse and I actually siphoned money off the church, off the, the purse. No one expected it, did they? No one assumed or thought that he did. But, so it's mandatory. This could be a temptation to anyone. Uh, and so it's mandatory that deacons be free as pastors from the love of money that could be a stumbling block or weakness to them. Paul describes his position in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, of, of money passing through his hands, but that's all it did. Uh, you know, the ladies here, the secretaries will tell you that often people, and I, I just tell you this because it's, it's a kind of a comical thing, and I, I never understand why people do it. Sometimes they'll send donations to the church made out to me with my name on it. And I have to endorse it and give it over to them. I wouldn't think of, you know, I know they didn't send it to me. You know, when it comes to the church, I don't know why people do that. Sometimes people will tell the deacons or me, come by, I have a, an offering to give to the church. And again, uh, from elderly people or whatever the situation, sometimes it is, is cash. And we're, we're very responsible. We write on there, this was cash and how much it was so that all will know uh, from the moment it's placed in our hands to the moment it get, got to where it's supposed to go. Because you know, it, Paul said, uh, as being poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. And he, he, he describes this uh, situation of dealing with money but none of it's yours. You have no authority over it except to be stewards of, of the Lord's treasury. Money passed through his hands that was not his. Paul took up a large offering, didn't he, for the, the Jerusalem Christians, and he was very picky about how they picked up that offering and took it to, back to them, and, it, and rightfully so. It calls for high levels of accountability. Verse 9 tells us, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The word mystery uh, is a, Paul that, a word that Paul often uses in the New Testament writings. It's a truth previously hidden or not clearly known, but now unveiled in the pure light of the gospel and of our Lord's work. And, and we could give some examples of mysteries. For example, the incarnation of Christ. That's a mystery, isn't it? How God took on flesh as a little baby and was raised and lived a, a sinless life. That's a mystery. It is revealed to us in a way that the Old Testament believer did not fully comprehend it, and yet it's still a mystery, isn't it? Or Christ dwelling in believers. Colossians 1 verse 26 tells us that he indwells us. And it's a mystery how his spirit, which is the same as Christ, the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Godhead, indwells us. Or the oneness of Jews and Gentiles in Christ, as Ephesians 1 tells us. How can that be? That's a mystery, isn't it? 
or the New Testament church, Hosea didn't know anything about. He couldn't picture, uh, my Old Testament Bible teachers in college used to picture it as being on a mountaintop, and they looked on the mountaintop at the end of time when Christ would come, Messiah would come, but in the valley they didn't understand or see the mystery of the church unfolded as, as we see unfolded for us in the, the New Testament age. It was a mystery to them. Or the rapture, what does Paul call it in 1 Corinthians 15? Behold, I show you a mystery. We don't understand it all, but we shall not all sleep. Some will be snatched away in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall rise first. And that's a mystery. I've, heard, I've, I've seen badly made movies about it. I have read stories. I've heard people uh, to try to describe it. I've seen uh, chick tracks. I've seen all kinds of things about the rapture. And still, it's never adequately depicted. Is it? We don't know how that's going. In the twinkling of an eye? But they go first, and it all happens about the same time. I, I can't figure that out, but it will happen, and it is a mystery. The faith that he mentions here, holding the faith uh, in, in, in verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. The faith is revealed, the revealed body of New Testament truth. It is what we hold dear. It is the faith. It's not a faith among many. It is the faith. And Jude was told to contend, earnestly fight for the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. It is not being added to. There are not new revelations of faith added to the closed canon of Scripture with the last amen of revelation. That's it. That's what's going to happen. That's what we should be about doing today. Not looking for some new thing or some new ism or feeling or schism or whatever. This is the faith. The Word of God, the apostolic doctrine in the New Testament, which was what Christ told them to record and give to His church. And, and it's, it's a mystery, and we're to guard it and to keep it as officers of the church. How do we best do that? By living it, by believing it, by teaching it and preaching it and espousing it and, and picturing it in all that we do. Deacons are not only to believe it, but they're to live it out to practice it, and surely as leaders of the church, we ought to be able to look to them as you do your pastors and say, okay, that's, these are, they're not perfect, but we should be modeling our lives in that way. Every deacon and every believer should be able to testify with Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and in godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our way of life in this world and more abundantly toward you. We've just simply lived out to the best of our ability in the power of the Holy Spirit what we were taught by our Lord. We see uh, his service in verse 10. Look there. And let these also first be proved. What does that mean? It means what it says. As Dr. Phillips used to say when I'd ask him a question, I'd say, Dr. Phillips, what does this mean? He says, it means what it says. Let them first be proved. Or literally to approve after testing. The tense of the verb in the Greek is an ongoing test. Not a one-time test or a probationary period to see if uh, they qualify. But deacons are to be constantly tested, as the pastor is. Uh, it's not something where you're, uh, you're voted in and then if you blow it that you can't be removed because you've been put in there once. You understand? It is a con our lives are constant, under constant scrutiny, are they? Not all of us, but especially those who handle the things of God. And even after ordination, so that while we believe uh, the office of, of, uh, to be a permanent one, 
and, and not a temporary one, just like the office of, of a bishop would be. You see, those who don't espouse the, the Acts 6 as a precedent, they view that as some temporary thing for that particular time. But, then, but nothing could be further from the truth. Why would they, for one thing, let me just tell you, why would they go to the trouble of ordaining them if this was just a temporary committee to, to take some food to some ladies? No, they be seriously seek you out men who are, who can be approved of this matter, and they laid hands on them to send them out. No, that, this could be nothing but the office of deacon established in the church, not a temporary position. Elders and deacons are to be continually evaluated, not the annual call as some country churches used to have. I know some brothers who serve in a church where every year they vote whether they want to keep them or not. And they often don't. <laughs> they, they say, bye-bye, so long. That is not where people get that. But as we serve the Lord, we constantly are on, on witness stand, aren't we? Our lives are in a constant, under constant scrutiny and uh, evaluated, by, evaluated by the church in the light of these serious qualifications. And we see in verse 10b, the latter part of verse 10, and also in verse 12, let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. There's that word again, used of the, of the uh, pastor. And in verse 12a, let the deacons be the husband of one wife. And like elders are to be above reproach in their moral lives. They should be devoted to their wives. And it should be obvious and clear that they are. And this differs, the office of elder and deacon differs in the teaching requirement of elders, but the deacons aid the pastor by applying their teaching and living it out and helping others to, to understand it. They, like the pastor, should have a godly testimony, nothing for which they could be accused or arraigned or set aside over. The Greek one-woman man is the same as it is for the, the, the bishop, models of sexual purity. Verse 11 says, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers or sober and faithful in all things. The Bible tells us, and I think that verse answers for itself, and these precious deacons' wives who come along beside their husbands, in a sense, and please understand me how I say that are almost deaconesses in the fact that they uh, bear their husbands' load. They take the food that the husbands take (laughs) to the widows and other people, and they do so much of the work alongside him and are seen really as teams, although uh, we do not espouse the, the office of a deaconess as such, and some churches do, and I wouldn't split hairs over that. But deacons' wives, since it's mentioned here with the deacons, it seems that these serve in almost that serving capacity alongside their husbands, and it's a very important office's office. And then it says, they, For they that have used, verse 13, the office of a deacon well purchased to themselves a good degree. What does that mean? There are rewards for all that we do for the Lord, but for these offices, the Lord tells us there is great reward. A good degree, that immediately that comes to mind, a degree from a university or something, but literally means an honored position or standing. A warning to whom much is given, much is required. And it's more than just having a title or an office, whether it be pastor or deacon. This is an honored position, and may it never be anything but that in this local New Testament church. May we hold the standard high. They're to lead the way by example by giving in faithfulness to the church and to its services and to the preaching in all the areas. I, I know pastors who have deacons, they rarely see them. Can you imagine such a thing? Here again, on again, off again. Respect comes from the office the way the Holy Spirit describes it. How could you not? 
But we give credence to it by how we live it out and how we handle it. Not only will they have a great reward, they have great confidence. The church has placed the confidence in them to, to stand for them, as it were, and to carry out their, their business. The, the confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The Greek word there is of great boldness. And it's often used in boldness of speech. Our deacons have to say what's true, and they sometimes have to set records straight and deal with situations for the pastor, and they have to be bold in doing that. There are gainsayers that will come along. There are people who make charges. There are all kinds of situations that are part of what uh, they must deal with in their office, and they need great boldness of speech. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, Acts 4 verse 13 tells us that they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, and deacons, I'm not saying that, that you are, that deacons are unlearned or ignorant men. You know that's not the case. But in this case, these men were. But they marveled that they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. And that our having been with Jesus ought to silence anyone's uh, estimation of us. John MacArthur writes, The faith that is in Christ Jesus refers to the sphere of Christian truths. The family of believers. Successful service breeds confidence and an assurance among the people served. Those who serve God well and see his power and grace operative in their lives will be emboldened for even greater service. Well, the question comes, I approach it as I begin. I know that some of you were wondering if I'm ever going to get back to the question about the plurality of deacons that is common in, in many congregations. What does that mean? Should it be that way? Is there a third category of the pastor and then the, the elders and then the deacons? What, uh, what does that mean? What about the plurality of elders in a local church? Or should there be a separate group of leaders uh, referred to uh, as elders apart from the deacons, known as elders, and if so, under what conditions would you have those and why? Those are legitimate questions, aren't they? And I probably should spend much more time than just a moment or two that I'm going to give it, but I think this will answer at least for a time for us as we seek the Lord's face in all these matters. We notice throughout the New Testament that while there may have been a plurality of elders or a group of pastors, that not every church had this set up. And that where there was this arrangement, there was always a pastor. Or as chapter 5 and verse 17 tells us, the ruling elder, the one who would oversee. Someone has maybe jokingly said that anything with more than one head is, is, a, is a monster. Uh, but, and then the, would, those would argue, what about the, the plurality of elders? Uh, there always seems to be a pastor of the church of each New Testament uh, body, each new, local New Testament church presiding. In other words, a pastor recognized as the shepherd or pastor of the church. And we, we could look at several uh, examples here. We notice that the seven letters to, uh, of our Lord, and re these are dictated letters uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ to literal churches in the, book, the first chapters of the book of Revelation. In each of those cases, Smyrna uh, and, and the other churches, Laodicea, it's addressed to the angel, the angel, the messenger, the pastor of the church at Pergamos, so on and so forth. So we know, in the, at least in that case, and we could we look at others, that there was a one noted as the pastor uh, of, of the church or the bishop of the church, the angel or messenger, or as we believe the passengers, pas, pastors of the, each specific congregation with specific messages given to those churches. 
We see in chapter 2, verse 1 of Revelation, to the, the angel of the church at, uh, of uh, Ephesus, right? In verse 8, the angel of the church of Smyrna, right? And so forth, a singular uh, person designated to that. Second John, verse 1, the elder is singular unto the elect lady or to the church. Third John 1, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. And so there's a singular office there. It seems that in most places where we see the plural word of elder used in the New Testament, in those contexts, if you'll study those contexts, in most of the cases that I've seen, it's a referral also to a plurality of churches, to the elders of the church in Asia are the different designations. And while we're not saying that there did specific churches, I'm sure the church at Jerusalem, until it broke up into smaller congregations, would have had a plurality of elders by necessity there. And so what, is the, what would be the, the, the calling or the reasoning for a separate group of men apart from the deacons as a plurality of elders? What would constitute that? What, what would be the need of that then? What would be, uh, w- under what conditions would you see more than, than one pastor or a group of, of pastors or those? Because that's what elders are. They're, they're, they're synonymous with pastors and would handle all the, the duties and the responsibilities of the pastor. And so in a specific congregation, when, for example, this is the only church we know about, is the one that we're a member of, at what point would we uh, consider that or, or should we consider that? And I, it, seems that, it seems to me since it, the that New Testament deacons oversaw the business of the church, if you study it, in greater detail than what I've given here tonight, you'll see that. The finances of the church, the, those uh, literal uh, business and stewardship of the, of the church, that elders then would come alongside the pastor as a fellow pastor and help in the teaching, since an elder must have the, the ability to teach, that would assist the pastor in the teaching and the discipling of new converts, in the counseling of those with spiritual problems and questions, and especially those needing instruction about salvation, that would interview people uh, and, and, and test their conversion experience by the word of God. These elders would come alongside uh, as the church would grow to such a place where they would need the pastor could not hear all of those or, or deal with each one of them individually, that they would need helpers in this, this area. I think each congregation, as they grow in number, that this need could arise and would might need to be considered under the biblical qualifications here for other pastors or elders to come alongside and help the pastor uh, in these spiritual, the area of spiritual work, of counseling. Since the deacons already, in our understanding of the Scripture, are overseeing the business part of the church, that these elders would come along in the spiritual realm of being physicians of the soul and helping the pastor diagnose and to troubleshoot and to help them see these problems by, by and having the, the ability to counsel using the Scripture and to teach the Scripture and to disciple people or teaching doctrine classes or new convert classes or church member classes and so forth. Well, may the Lord bless us to a degree to grow to the place that, that and, and the interest that we would need is already we have here in our assistant pastor, we have in that regard a plurality of pastors and others to help uh, in the large work that the Lord would raise up here. These things write I to thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, if I don't get there when I want to, that thou mayest know what? How you should carry on God's business. So how you would know how to behave yourself in the house of God, referring to the local congregations of believers, which is the church. Can someone say amen right there? 
of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. We're left here to be truth in this world. Who else handles the scriptures? Not some agency. They may try to, but the only ones authorized are the churches of Christ. We teach the the scriptures and the doctrine of God to the next generation, the pillar and ground of truth, and without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. Now, Lord, this is your word, and we praise you for it. We thank you for it all that you've done in our midst and are doing. We marvel at it, the spiritual growth that we see. Lord, we long for you to, to break forth revival in this place. And we beg, we plead with the, the angel of mercy, the covenant angel of Jehovah, that you would search us and try us and know our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in our midst. Lord, would you help us to repent and by so discerning your mind and your will to do, any, to do whatever it would take to remove any cloud that would prevent your showers of blessing upon us. We long to see Christ glorified and souls saved and brought to you and lives reclaimed and homes put back together and those added to the church daily such as should be saved. And Lord, we know that you alone can do this. Oh, bless your church. Bless us. Bless us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.